I heard the same story you did. The Dark King showed up shortly after the arrival of the Takers, that only he could vanquish them. So I was curious. Who was this magician? What was his story? So I sought him out. And I was shocked to discover that I knew him. Oh, you are good at telling stories. Thank you. Now, in order to talk about who he is and where he actually came from, we need to look further back to a time before Martin Chatwin became the Beast. Really? Long before he discovered the Wellspring, Martin had another plan to make sure that he never got sent back to Earth. A conduit spell to tie himself to Fillory. We know it. The Dark King used it. Except we chopped down his tree. But there's an essential fact that perhaps you don't know about the trees of Fillory. You see, there are many, but in truth, only one. What kind of bullshit is that? Yeah. I mean, I'm Florian and I have never heard that. You see, the roots of the trees of Fillory intertwine such that they become one, not just with each other, but with the land. And anyone tied to that can't be killed by just chopping down a single tree or pff, even an entire forest. They can only be stopped by destroying all of Fillory. Wait, so you're saying Martin tried but screwed up or whatever? He was thwarted by someone heroic who knew what he could become. Martin's own brother, Rupert. Rupert Sebastian Chatwin. Welcome back to Physical Kids Weekly, everyone. I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And we have two guests with us today to talk about episode 509, Cello Squirrel Daffodil. Our first is the writer behind today's episode, Stephanie Coggins. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. And our second guest is the man behind Sir Effingham and the Dark King, a.k.a. Sebastian, a.k.a. Rupert Chatwin. Damn, that's a lot of identities to keep straight. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's Sean McGuire. Hi, Sean. Hi, how you doing? (laughs) Good. Well, we're so excited to have you both here. Um, It's always fun when we have new people on the podcast and we have two new people. And we always love our, like, writer-actor combos. So, yeah, thank you for being here. My pleasure, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to start with some listener questions. And I have to say I was impressed by the response on this one. There's no way we can get to all of them or even most of them and still have time to talk about the episode. Um, It was overwhelming in the best way possible. But because Sean is so lovely and gracious, we were able to get an extra half hour with him before Stephanie joined us. And we used that time to ask as many listener questions as we were able to. So we'll release that as a bonus mini episode a little later in the season, basically whenever I have time to sit down and edit it. So, shall we get started? Let's. Yes. All righty. The first one's for you, Sean. From Stacy E.K., what was it like playing two completely different characters on the same show? And how does it, how does it having roles on two different shows? How does it differ um, the, from, the, I think? <laughs> it's, okay. It's, yeah. um, it's the best thing in the world as an actor, you know, that I, I don't, think there's many actors that would say no to that if you offered them it you know especially given that they're so incredibly different from each other um i just i don't know i I kept coming home from vancouver and you know friends and family would ask how was it and i was like it's like going to fantasy camp it was just so much fun (laughs) to do two such polar opposite things 
with the same fantastic group of people. So, um, yeah, it's going to be tough for another job to come along and top this one for a minute, I think. <laughs> I love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Stephanie, I think this one's for you. Uh, I I really love this question because it's so delightful and wonky and just freaking nerdy. Um, at Gaffy Labs asks, how did the Dark King restructure the political landscape after seizing power in Fillory and discovering the missing court? Wow. Wow. I'm glad that's for you. I know. Um, well, uh, I can say that. I, I will say that anything's possible in Fillory. <laughs> and perhaps that's the safest answer. Yes. <laughs> He's, you are dedicated. Yes. You've got <laughs> you a career devoted. in politics ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more smiling, tight-lipped writers. <laughs> like that. Uh, okay. This one's for Sean from Jazzingly Jew. How did you prepare to play such a complex villain as the Dark King? And how is it different from the way you've prepared for other roles? Well, every role has its own sort of criteria. You know, everything starts with the script, obviously, because there's no point in having any kind of ideas of your own. If it's not in the script, it's not going to be in the show or the movie. So the script is the Bible, that is the gospel, and you um, you kind of go through it as many times. I, every actor has a different approach. I find even with very good writing as this was, you owe it to the writing to really spend time looking at it and going, there's a very easy thing as an actor to just pick it up and go, yeah, no, I think I know exactly what I'm going to do with this. You're like, no, your job is like a detective. You're supposed to comb it for clues. You're supposed to look at punctuation, everything that the writer has put there. They've put there with great intent. They've done it with a lot of forethought. I find writers rarely do things slapdash. You know, they've thought about it and thought about it. They're very methodical. And so as an actor, you really, if you want to give the best work, you should really go to task with the script. And obviously with Effingham, um, Henry's writing with Effingham, to <laughs> me was one of those strange things where I could just hear the music in it. And I after I read it three or four times at home and I was like, I really have a strong sense of what I would do with this guy. Um, so it came a bit like hearing a tune and being able to sit at an instrument and play it. It felt very hand in glove. Whereas with The Dark King, because I couldn't know everything about him, I was finding out week by week more and more about him. My approach had to be different and it had to be more, um, well, also because he's a very physically different character, you know, poise was different, walking was different. Mm -hmm. So it's just, they're just it, it's like literally playing two different instruments. It's the guitar and the piano. They're completely different, but they both require the same discipline. They both require the same uh, time put in to do the investigation so that you haven't missed anything. And then you come and if and what's wonderful about the magicians is having Stephanie on set when I had questions, when we had mm -hmm. thoughts and, and uh, you know, Stephanie's episode was particularly complicated from a number of different points of view. Having a writer yeah. on set and having access to John and Sarah if you need them is invaluable for the actor because we want to serve the writing as best as possible. And whenever you make a leap of faith, it might be great. You'd be the greatest actor in the world. But if it's in the wrong direction, you, you're leaping off a building to the ground. So um, having the writer there is super helpful. And and yeah, in, in regards to playing them both, it, it was two very different sort of approaches, but um, both, both ultimately as rewarding as each other. Yeah. If I could speak on that too. Um, uh, yeah, I really appreciated 
everything that Sean said was correct. Like I really appreciated um, being on set with him. Um, like you did a really great job of diving into the character and really doing the detective work. And your questions were all very smart and all very like helpful and important. So thank, thank you. you for making that a great experience. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the next question is for you, Stephanie. It's from at Glinda Love Shoes. How do writers plan an arc like the Dark One, like the Dark King one in this season? What is the process like of developing the character and his relationship mm-hmm. to other characters? Um, <laughs> it was important for us to know the beginning of the Dark King's journey, the middle, and the end. Um, and so, at the beginning of every season that I've ever worked on on TV, and especially in this season of The Magicians, we had to have a map of where we were going with this character. Um, like Sean said, it, it's a very dif- a very um, different type of character. It's a very complicated story. We, as a team, worked out all of those different like signposts for him. So, to answer the question, it's really just. Um, we planned uh, the arcs ahead of time. Mm-hmm. The small little details that come out during discussion throughout the process of the season as we're building episodes, those are those little special little gems that pop up, you know, mm. little bits of dialogue. And oftentimes, like, things that the actors will bring, like, things that the talent will bring to the process while we're shooting, you know, mm-hmm. that, that are really special and unique to that episode. Yeah. Um, those are all not planned and often very um, spontaneous, you know, and, and, and special in that way. But I think that to answer the question again, yes, we do plan the arcs out by talking at length about the beginning, middle, and end. So one thing that I was interested in, I picked up on when Sean was talking about it, was, um, he, he, Sean, you were saying that you didn't, like, you got these reveals a bit at a time, even though obviously the writers sort of knew where it was going um, all along. And Stephanie, I'm I'm kind of curious about that. Like, um, why not just tell him who he's going to be? Why uh, string it along? Uh, you know, that's a complicated one. And if yeah. I may, Stephanie, there's, there's sure. a reason. There's, there's very good reasons to not always tell an actor on a show in a particular role like this. There's a number of different reasons, varying from all sorts. Uh, let me <laughs> explain. Um Sometimes, the, but here's a basic one. You bring in an actor and you say, we're going to use you for three weeks and the actor's fine on the first day and in the second episode, they're late and they don't know their lines. And then the third day, <laughs> they're late and they don't... Writers have to... Producers have to be very smart that you have to allow yourself for uh, a, a mistake. And sometimes casting doesn't work out or somebody doesn't work out for whatever reason. So there's one reason why you need to not tell the actor the full everything that they might be doing. There's another reason, which is if you told the actor that, then they might go, well, I'm terribly important to this show. I'm going to get my agents on the phone and demand more money. That's the second reason. (laughs) The third reason is more of a, like from an acting point of view, sometimes it's better that a character doesn't know where he's going because in life, I don't know what's going to happen in two weeks' time. I certainly don't know what's going to happen in ten. So there's various different reasons why producers will often not tell an actor oh, guess what? You're going to actually be the villain for like a whole season because that can have an adverse effect for the whole production. Mm -hmm. Now, from an actor's point of view, it would be fantastic to know that. It would be much more useful and beneficial and all of that, but it just doesn't work like that. And I think Mm -hmm. you have to accept as an actor there are protocols and structures in place because they've been down this road before. And Hollywood has learned its lesson in all sorts of different ways, like, don't get caught that way. We, we, were, we were held over the coals by an actor for this. So they've got much wiser at 
not revealing. So it's for, for business reasons and for talent and uh, technical reasons that sometimes it's better. And, and also, it keeps an actor on your toes. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you're much less likely to get lazy and start phoning it in when you don't know you're <laughs> going to be there next week. So if I was running a show, I would probably keep that exact same mandate. So um, I don't know if Stephanie concurs, but that's... I concur. <laughs> that, that, that might be the yeah, very the well said. of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very interesting answer. Um, so, <laughs> this interesting, question. Interesting, slightly cynical. Oh, I, should, I should add, though, that, that, that John and Sarah were very good at, because I said, look, I, you don't have to tell me where we're headed, but I have to know who I am. I have to know yeah. what is internally going on with me. And they were very good at giving me all of the kind of emotional building blocks that I needed to play the scene. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't held... Uh, blindfolded into where I was going. They gave mm-hmm. me what I needed, but there were mm-hmm. reasons for not um, elaborating on on where it was all headed. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. So this question from Being a Maguire is for Sean. And as someone who came up with a lot of crackpot theories this season, it was me. Um, <laughs> I personally think it's great. Um, so when you were watching the show to prepare for this role... What did you think of it? And did you develop any theories while you were watching it or favorite characters? Uh, well, I did start watching it uh, almost straight away as soon as I kind of got engaged on it. And then um, my wife and I watched, I think, three or four in a row the first night. And again, I think I said earlier, my wife's quite a tough critic. She was a detective in real life. So oh, wow. she's she doesn't oh, um, she's not easily cool. fobbed off and like, oh, yeah, it's lovely. She's like that. Mm. It's a little weak, you know, whereas with this, <laughs> she was like, I love this. This is like grown up Harry Potter stuff. It's all the stuff I love and it's funny and it's witty and it's clever and it's adult. And, and I was like, yeah, it's really good. Um, but as for uh, characters, I loved, you know, I, I think a lot of the characters that all the fans love, um, but I'm not going to name them because I think that that's unfair. Uh, but, uh, I don't have theories because I know better to not. And I had television works and whatever my theory is, the writers will have already thought of that and tried to counteract it. So I, because I've been doing this a long time, when I'm trying to watch a TV show to enjoy it, I try not to guess what's coming. I like to let it all unfold, let the writing unfold, let the actor's performance unfold and enjoy it rather than sit there going, what do you think? Maybe he's this person. You just missed dialogue. You just, that was a key piece of dialogue. <laughs> you just talked over with your crackpot theory. So shh, commercial break, talk at the commercial break. Uh, so I don't bother coming up with theories. Um, but obviously playing The Dark King, I was kind of like, I wonder where I'm headed with this. But I just got the feeling that I was in safe hands and... I just thought I'm having a ball on this and I'll enjoy it for as long as it goes. And it, um, it turned out to be a lovely ride. Well, we're, we're getting Dan, Danny's uh, smug smile because you were saying nobody gets it right and she totally called this, which she'll tell Woo! us all about. Um, but before <laughs> that, we have one more question for Stephanie. Um, mm-hmm. As a new addition to the Magician's Writer's Room in Season 5, there's this sort of dual challenge of integrating your voice and bringing your unique ta- talents to the table in a show that has a pretty well-established vibe. What does mm-hmm. that look like for you, and what about this episode or this season most resonates with you or reflects your particular approach? Well, Good question. I, <laughs> yeah. Um, I got very, very, very lucky in that the entire crew and writing staff for the magicians is like one big family. And it was very welcoming. Everyone is very talented and sweet. And I thought that that was a really great place um, just starting off it. Um, this would this was my second job um, as a writer. 
And, um, yeah. And, and it was, um, you know, like, like you'd mentioned, like coming into um, a season that's already, you know, the storylines are kind of like established off of a mythology that's very, very dense, um, lots of characters. Um, and in particular this season, lots of very interesting reveals. So, you know, I, I did have to rely a lot upon, um, just, what I'd learned as a writer and how you structure a story, but I had a lot of guidance. Um, and that was crucial, I think, and, mm-hmm. and much, um, made me a much better writer as a result. Um, because there were people who had been with the show for so long who were willing to teach me and who were willing to, you know, guide me along the way. So that being said, um, I, came into the show, like, I'm, I'm a really big horror fan, mm. and there was a scene in particular I uh, that had some, <laughs> <laughs> had some very strong um, body horror vibes going on. <laughs> so that was, like, a little bit, you know, like, I really had fun. I had fun with that scene writing it. I had fun shooting it. Um, and, you know, it may have been a little bit, uh, a little bit icky for some people in the crew. I won't name names. <laughs> I, I think but. it might be one of the the most gruesome ones we've had on this show. We're talking about the, the scene with Alice getting her fingers cut off in this episode. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Fingers <laughs> be chopped off. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like that's right up my alley. And um, I, I was I was lucky in that I got that gross scene in my episode. Because <laughs> I'm like Friday the 13th. I'm like, you know, slasher films galore. And that's like, yes, okay, we get the blood out now. <laughs> well, you and Sarah must bond. <laughs> and Olivia, right? Isn't she a big horror fan? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, she's been in a couple. Exactly, exactly. So that was that was kind of fun for us. She definitely had a good horror scream. Um, (laughs) So with that, I think it's time for us to get into the episode. So to recap, Plum and Penny get stuck in the past and seek help from Penny's old pal Hyman Cooper to escape the casually racist white people of Breakbill's past. In the present, Katie and Alice try to track down the couple and end up in the Matrix in well over their heads. In Fillory, the resurrected Dark King captures Elliot and Julia. Margot and Fenn escape to Earth where they find a tongue-tied Christopher Plover. Once they get his tongue untied, Plover tells them that the Dark King isn't who he seems to be. In fact, he's Rupert Chatwin, pining over his long-lost love, Lance McAllister, who was brutally murdered while... Rupert slumbered under a spell. This is a run-on sentence, Clara. Uh, who was brutally murdered while he slumbered under a spell cast by his brother Martin. And that, briefly, is the episode. So, Danny, what'd you think? I mean, can I can I just say that I've never been this right when it comes to a theory that I've had on the podcast? And it felt really good. So, like, on top of it, I've been holding the secret in for like what feels like forever. So it's been about three weeks or so for us since we've seen the episode. And I was like almost like too right. Like, did I ghost write this season? Um, <laughs> I do want to say that I liked uh, watching the end of this episode because I was in the dark corner of a Starbucks uh, before I went to work because I just had to finish the episode because I have no self-control. And... I was just, like, in the back of the Starbucks, though, and, like, everything starts unfolding. And I, like, let out the, like, ugliest shriek I think I could in public <laughs> and nearly spit out my drink. So that was pretty funny. But <laughs> this is a huge episode for reveals and answers, and, of course, I loved it. 
<laughs> well, uh, I knew you would love this episode. I, you know, I'm asking you, but it's, it's really a formality because uh, we have Sean, and because this episode is a big reveal for the Dark King. Oh, and I should say, I fucking love this episode too. But you'll hear more about that later. Um, because we have Sean, because this episode is a big reveal for the Dark King. I think that we should start our breakdown and chat with that storyline. Danny, of course, I know you're excited about this because you've been <laughs> holding in that you're right for weeks now. <laughs> um, and uh, we we actually got the third episode, which is the first episode that the Dark King is in, in December. And she had her theory about Rupert Chatwin then. <laughs> so she had, like, written up this whole theory. Um, you were in, Wallen, like In elaborate detail. <laughs> I was like that that one like picture on the internet of uh, Charlie Day just with yes. his like yes. and all the yes. strings. Exactly. Right. Um, so yeah, like obviously this is this is the part that Danny is really excited about. Um, and what I love about this reveal and all the sort of different pieces that come with it is the way that it really complicates the morality of the Dark King. And it's it's aligned with what we've been seeing the whole season. He seems so sensitive, and yet he's doing these awful things. And now we have a reason, if not a justification, for, for why all that's happening. He lost the man he loved, saving the world. He'll do anything he can to get him back, even if it means royally fucking with the boundary between life and death and putting literally everyone and everything in danger. So I think the place that I want to start with this is, does the Dark King, does Rupert, understand the ramifications of what he's trying to do or is he just not even thinking about that and and stephanie i guess i'd start by asking you like is this something that yeah. you talked about in the writer's room as you were pulling together the season yeah we we certainly had to kind of psychoanalyze what rupert's going through here we we started from the idea that rupert underwent a lot of trauma in his life. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he lived through the war and lost a lot of people and ended up losing his true love as, as well. And, you know, the kind of things that trauma does to a person, we really had to take into consideration when we were trying to frame his story. Um, so yes, like, I think that we spent a lot of time talking about Rupert's motives, um, and, whether or not he had, he really did justify in his mind his actions because mm. nothing that he's doing is really that bad compared to living without his true love. So that he knows of, because it's going to be pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, in his mind, he's like, like you know, life is hell without him, mm. and. I would, I don't care what's beyond the veil. I need to see him again. You know, it, it's a very human emotion. It's a very human action for him to, you know, pull out all the stops to experience that joy. Because mm. for him, it's joy. It's not, you know, harm to others. Um, so that was something that we definitely took a lot of time to kind of assess and unpack. Because it was a very, like you said, like it's a very um, complicated uh, person. It's a very complicated history for him. Mm. So, Sean, how do you see Rupert, like in a moral sense? Is he evil or do you think he is capable of being redeemed? Well, I feel like 
part of me feels like I, I would be better placed to answer all these questions once you know the conclusion to this story, <laughs> because I don't want to say too much about what I feel, because what I feel is kind of what the Dark King feels. So I don't want to speak on behalf of him, and I don't want to reveal too much. But what I would say is, you know, just to touch on what Stephanie said, you know, love is probably one of the most, if not the most powerful thing on earth, and can get us to do, and we've all done some pretty crazy things for love. Now, if you couple that with the kind of power that a world leader has, how many times have we seen a world leader says, you know, a, a virus is going to spread here, we have to quarantine that, they're going to die, well, so what? I have to think about mm. the death of one million people, but I have to protect 359 million to do so. A world leader is forced to make decisions, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, whatever it is, we, you know, a world leader is forced to make those decisions and can't think about the physical cost of the individual lives. You have to think, do what's best for the country or the nation or whatever it is. Um, now, in his case, it is different because it is motivated by um, love. But I, I would just say that there's there's two ways of looking at him. There's one, he's a leader, and the other, that he's a man who's deeply wounded and will, will do anything to get back the love that he wants. Um, and over the course of the next period of time, we're going to see how that evolves and what the conclusion of that is. So me talking about his morality or his moral compass, I feel might kind of give an indication of where we're headed. And I'd, I'd rather not do that. Well, I, I personally find the idea of redemption so fascinating and, and complicated, really, because it's, it's such a huge part of stories like this one. And I don't mean just like the Dark King story. I mean, the magicians in general. Um, or of anything that like follows or subverts anything that interacts with the hero's journey, um, period. And at the same time, it's clear that not all villains get redeemed. So Plover, for example, though he has helped our heroes a few times and though he keeps coming back, doesn't seem like that help is buying him redemption. Uh, but also some people, some people want and should be redeemed and some people want redemption, but shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah. and the thing is, that's why I'm sort of reticent to sort of speak about my feelings because I can't tell you and nobody How knows apart from those in the show what you don't know what might come in episodes 10, 11, 12, or 11, 12 or 13. Or, do you know what I mean? And I, yeah. If I say one thing, you'll go, oh, so it's definitely not that then. It's not that. Like, <laughs> at the moment, we might, you know, it might seem that his, uh, um, the reason he's doing it is virtuous. Maybe that's a lie. Maybe yeah. um, maybe he's not who he says he is. Maybe he is, but he's fucked up. You know, maybe there's so many things. And what <laughs> I love most about him is this guy was a bit of a riddle and a, an, a, an enigma to the end. And I, I would love to be able to sustain that that intrigue with him right until the very end. And then when you think it's the end, there's one more little bit that you go, ah, that's interesting. <laughs> so for me, it was really gratifying and, and exciting to read the scripts and everything. And I hope that, that we can keep that sense um, all the way to the end of the season. And so on that point of like some people, I think he said something like some people think they should be redeemed and they really shouldn't. And some people don't see themselves as redeemable and really should be. Stephanie... Is there something in your mind that distinguishes villains who are redeemable from irredeemable villains, whether in the show or just sort of more broadly? Oh, well, <laughs> it's, that's a really tough question. I mean, like, I, I definitely have, like, my hard and fast rules of morality in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it having a kind of a having these gray areas is what makes interesting television. Mm -hmm. Um 
because you're not going to, nobody walks around saying exactly what's on their minds all the time and, you know, like telling each other, like, you know, eventually I'm going to betray you or, you know, like nobody's, <laughs> <laughs> nobody does that. So, you know, there's always a risk, I guess, of, you know, people, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but, you know, like, like there's always a risk yeah. of inter- in, in, um, encountering people who are going to make bad choices that are harmful choices, but then come back from it. And there's, you know, I, I guess, yeah, that's a really hard question to answer because, you know, I'm really of the, of the, I'm of the school of making things kind of gray and fuzzy when it comes to narrative storytelling on TV. And, you know, like, I, I, I like that. I like, you know, are they redeemable or are they going to do something that, you know, you just can't. And I like having that disagreement. I like having that debate. Like when we watch a character and they make a choice that, you know, I might think is totally fine and you might have a problem with it. And then we have that feeling and it's like a really great um, debate that occurs and it makes you want to watch more. So, well, so like- the, the thing is, there's, you know, the old adage of one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say the people that did this atrocity, they should be hung, drawn and quartered for what they did. And you're like, but do you know what happened to them? Why they did that? And you're like, oh, damn, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So every story and every character is different depending on the position from which you look at it. You know, yeah. that again, coming back to why I don't want to say too much about the Dark King, because at the end, you'll kind of, you'll have your discussion about whether he, what he was doing was good, bad or indifferent. But I certainly don't, especially as the guy playing him, want to color it because I think, as Stephanie just said, that the interesting thing in drama and the interesting thing in telling stories is that gray area in the middle where we disagree over coffee and pie about why a character does that. And you're like, no, 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 that's not why you did that. that that's <laughs> not right. That's bullshit. And you're like, that's when we're succeeding at our job because we're forcing you to discuss the point of view of our characters and are they right, are they wrong, what did we mean by that, was that an allude to something else or was it just my imagination? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's what I think when you get really layered, complicated, well-written television, that promotes these kinds of discussions, um, which is what I think actors and writers and television makers, we, we live for. That, those kinds of discussions are pretty obviously like me and Danny's favorite thing or we wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, I think you were trying to say something at one point. Do you? Did you want to? No, I was just saying, like you breaking down, like how people feel, like differently about things. It just made brought me back to like the final season of like Game of Thrones and just like everyone yelling at each other on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Danny should have burned everything. <laughs> no, <laughs> Danny has a lot of feelings about other Danny. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Um, <laughs> We will ask uh, one more question of Sean before we move on to the next part of the story. And I'm not even entirely sure if you're going to answer me at this point. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) so even though Rupert is using Elliot, it seems pretty clear to me from this episode and the last one that he also genuinely cares about him. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Like, what does Rupert feel for Elliot and how are those feelings affecting him as he pushes forward with his plan to bring Lance back? Well, you know, as much as his heart is betrothed to his love that he has been searching and longing for and pining for all these centuries, you know, even when we're holding a very special place for somebody, especially somebody gone, somebody else can wander into our lives and make us go, huh, ah, ah, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and you can have that chemistry and that that kind of electricity that happens between two people that find each other interesting and 
and um, empathetic and sensitive, especially as these two characters are. And so I think that, I, I mean, having seen bits of it, you know, the way in which that Hale and I are playing it, there's, there is a, there's something between them. Um, Elliot is obviously damaged from his past. Uh, Seb is damaged from his past and there is a comfort within each other. Who's to say one or both of them or either of them or neither of them is manipulating the other one and that's going to change at the very last turn. I am not going to say, but the idea for, I think, of us as actors, we were trying to put the puzzle together how we wanted to do it. And then we wanted to leave enough room in there to cause some doubt so that you could maybe... Because I think one of the best things that happens in TV when, when we've achieved our objectives, we lead you one way and then we sort of hit you with something else and then we take you in another direction. And so... Um, but I, I would say, I mean, I think what I could say is it would be hard for someone like Seb to not be um completely enamored by someone like Elliot because he's a very he's a pretty (laughs) um exceptional guy um you know the characters he's complicated and fascinating and witty and he kind of reminds me of Oscar Wilde um -hmm. that's how I feel like Hale brings a sort of wild-like wit and charm and just it's just such a beautifully full-rounded performance that I could wax lyrical about how um, in awe I am of him. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, um, this is a show that um, you shouldn't get too complacent in thinking. I'm certainly sure about what's going to happen because yeah, these, these writers <laughs> have a few tricks up their sleeves. I think we do. <laughs> so, Danny, maybe I should turn this on you. What do you think's going to happen now that, like, the reveal of your first theory is here? Where, well, given that you already where know. Where are we going? Oh, no, Danny, sorry. Okay, sorry. Danny! Well, I, mean, <laughs> I was going to say, Stephanie already pretty sure she knows. <laughs> I would hope so. But no, Danny, what's your, uh, your the continuation of your crackpot theory? Where are we going from here? Uh, well, I mean, we talked about it a little bit through text, I think. Um, I... I want to see Elliot be happy because, like, after last season, like, he just really deserves it. Like, that was that was a lot of shit he dealt with. So personally, of course, from, like, a standpoint of being a fan and being a fan of Elliot, like, I want him to be happy. And I want uh, there to be a happy ending to a queer story on TV. So, of course, I want that. But, like, what I think would potentially happen, I guess, would be maybe, like, Elliot will come to uh, Rupert and just be like, you do realize at this point you're being just as evil as your brother that you tried to stop. So like, I think that point will at least come across at some point. There is, you know, the whole thing at play with uh, Plum being yeah. introduced. And in the books, Plum is Rupert's great-granddaughter. I don't know exactly if they'll retcon that or what's going to happen there. But, I mean, that's someone that he could build a bond with that's still alive. Yeah. As a relative. We were talking about that a little bit earlier today. And, um, I mean, whether she is his, I don't, I mean, I don't know if progeny or like whether, whether she's in his line or in Jane's or whatever else, I think is kind of immaterial. But I was thinking more and more that like maybe part of the sort of obsessiveness of this bond with Lance is not just that it was like young love that got cut short very tragically, but maybe also that he woke up 300 years in the future and nobody nobody else is there. He has no one else to sort of connect with. And he is starting to make 
connections now, but as uh, sort of Elliot mentioned, Elliot in Margot's body mentioned last episode, right? Like there's a guilt that comes with the bond with Elliot, but Plum, there's no guilt there, right? Like that's just family. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that you're right and that there's going to be some kind of way in which those that sort of collection of bonds comes together. The other thing, did we talk about this when we talked to Dustin, um, which is going to be released after this episode, but whatever. But like, um, Hyman's character is from around the same time. Yeah, we talked about yeah, it. Yeah, as Rupert's character. So there's like a coalescence of factors here that feel like we're going to start to get a, a couple of different bonds and, uh, yeah, we're getting more of those writer smiles in the corner there. So I uh, guess we'll, we'll leave it there and turn to Penny and Plum. <laughs> Can I say, there's one thing that you, you mentioned earlier, Danny, about um, wanting to see sort of Elliot's character, to see a, a queer gay character have a, have a happy ending. And, and I have noticed, obviously, I wasn't with the show until this season, but I'm obviously aware of Quinton's departure and how a lot of the audience felt about that. And I saw a lot of people writing, um, and I've had some experience with um, the LGBT community and and characters and relation to that. And one of the things I noticed that I, I noticed some people understandably upset writing, well, of course they would kill an LGB character or the uh, LGBT character or a queer character or a gay character. I would just say, and I don't want to speak about the matter because it's really nothing to do with me, I would just say that you, all people should know that writers' rooms are not only diverse in terms of ethnicity, but diverse in terms of sexuality. We have as many gay, queer, trans, change, you know, writers. In every writer's room that I've ever worked with, there is a lot of representation in that room that would never um, want to besmirch gay characters just for the sake of it. And I, I felt like, uh, I felt a responsibility to sort of say on behalf of writers, I know that if your character that you adore, who happens to be gay, gets killed, it's very upsetting, but it, it, it's not quite accurate to say that the reason that that character was killed on the show was because the writer's room doesn't like a gay character. That doesn't make any sense at all. Right. It's like saying, oh, that character died because he's black because they hate black characters. They're like, well, they wouldn't have written the character and hired the character if they were against the character. It's just sometimes behind the scenes, certain things evolve and certain things change. And, and, and you know, you end up where you are on a show. And I just felt like I, I felt like I wanted to just shout out and also just to speak to some of that audience that are so upset. Totally get you. I totally feel you. And it's totally understandable. But it certainly doesn't come from any kind of um, dislike for any community, whether it be LGBT or any kind of race or religion. Yeah. The writer's room is quite diverse and really tries to, I think, speak to all groups because writers and actors, we're a bunch of misfits. We're all a bunch yeah. of strangers who join the mm -hmm. circus and we, we, we appreciate the strange and wonderful and the magical in everyone. And I've never seen a bunch of writers ever go, yeah, we're fine with everyone except that group over there. You know, it's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's just not something you see because writers are, they're, they're the bookworms that have been reading every different character and, and wanting to bring all characters to screen. So I, I hope that, people understand that there's certainly no animosity to any particular group, certainly not from writers or actors. I'm sure you probably feel the same way, Stephanie. Yes. Um, I was like, like I said, like our room was a very great room. Like a, as far as it felt like a family, it was a diverse room. I myself am a woman of color. I definitely am aware of certain, you know, attributes that can be unfairly 
ascribe to characters who are like me. So I try very hard to kind of in, infuse, you know, a, an appreciation and a, and, a, and a respect for characters um, who are of every variety. Um, variety is the spice of life. And I like to celebrate it in everything that I write. And I would never be a part of an organization or any kind of uh, creative community that would ignore that. Um, so, yeah, I really do appreciate what Sean is saying, and I, I second it wholeheartedly. Well, and I think, um, you know, you raise a, an important point, and uh, maybe I'm being naive. I, I hope that most people, even the people who are being very, who are very vocally angry, understand that there's no genuine malicious intent. I do think that, right, some of what they're speaking to is what, what you sort of alluded to as well, Stephanie, that there is a long history of um, sort of tragedy befalling queer characters that that was initially, if not malicious, definitely intentional. Um, and so I think sometimes mm-hmm. people uh, conflate either they conflate the intent and um, the action or they're just so burned by that history that it becomes yeah. very hard for them to, 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 I mean, it's, it's understandingly emotional. So, yeah, and, also, yeah. and also if you get a great character like Quinton, who is beloved by straight Absolutely. and gay and queer audiences and who's the lead of the show and a wonderful charismatic actor, and you've been following him for four seasons, you know, when a favorite character dies on the show, we all get pissed off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The difference is to understand, like, ah, <laughs> oh, that's not where I wanted the story to go or it's not where I was thinking it was going to go, <laughs> between sort of going, right, I'm angry, let me find the people I want to go shout at over the internet, because sometimes there's a confluence of different things that have gone on to lead to a creative decision that got made on any show with yeah. any character. So it, it's best to not sort of assume that any malice intent was behind why a departure happened. Sometimes it, it just organically creates or, or becomes that way, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we are 100% there with you. Uh, we did get yelled <laughs> out on the internet by a lot of people for our opinions the last season. So. <laughs> people yeah, yelling on the internet? That's unusual. Yeah, that's unheard of. <laughs> Shock. Well, uh, we should get into the rest of the episode. Um, there's uh, uh, Right, so we we're going to talk about Penny and Plum. And there was a lot in this episode in general that resonated with me. But I think Penny and Plum's uh, sort of plot line got like hit me in the feels the most and part of that mm-hmm. is I really appreciate how this episode tackles racism in the time travel plot because there's <laughs> right, like it is time travel is such a trope and so much of the time when you have time travel and it is written by people with a lot of privilege and I don't say that as like a, a like insult but like they do have a lot of privilege and they don't really have a good idea for what it would be like if you weren't white and male and upper class to go back in time and what that mm-hmm. would look like. Um, and then there are some really great exceptions, um, like Kindred by Octavia Butler, that show how oh, insane oh. it is, right? Like they sort of go on the opposite end of the spectrum. But what I liked about this episode was that... Um, it manages to address the racism of break bills in the 1920s and the ways that Penny and Plum <laughs> experience it, even a little differentially in passing. Um, but yeah, it, it is sort of in passing, right? Like it's part of the world building of the episode. Yeah. It's not the central point. You're still doing the like main puzzle is still how the fuck do we get back to our time without <laughs> fucking things up here like any mm-hmm. other time travel story. And I thought that was really effective. 
it was really fun to 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 write. Um, and you're right. Like it, it kind of was like here's an even bigger obstacle you have to overcome. Not only can do you have to solve this mystery, but now you have to deal with people's bullshit. And <laughs> um, and it, it's true. Like time travel stories were extra fun <laughs> to kind of envision for myself. So I'm like. There is no greater time than today for me. There really is. I mean, maybe maybe 2012. was pretty good. But yeah, yeah, pretty great. It's been a bit shit for the last three years. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like fun to kind of approach it from that angle because with yes, like um, having Penny and Plum be our focus. Um, they were definitely going to encounter prejudice and they were mm-hmm. definitely going to encounter people who were going to block them at every turn because of the way they look. And, you know, I like, I appreciate that you could see like, okay, well, they, they weren't going to complete, be completely stymied by this. They have to work with it. Mm-hmm. And um, they were lucky enough to encounter someone who, you know, may represent all the worst parts of that time period, but, but who they could, <laughs> could actually help them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. Like even, even break bills, like one of our most beloved institutions, it also had, you know, um, well, you know, when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to Harvard and, you know, she was literally what, one of, one of two, three women and they're all looking at her like she was a secretary. I mean, obviously we're talking about, gender rather than race but you're right i mean you go back for for women for people of color for you know when you go back down the timeline it's not great no. there's, there's very few safe havens for women or people of color or people uh, of, of a different religious persuasion or a sexual persuasion i mean yeah. it's you know for all the horrifying things that are going on today at least most of us with common sense have accepted that we have moved into a place in the 21st century where we at least know what we're supposed to do, you know what I mean? Even if there are those of us who are not. Refuse to do that. (laughs) It feels weird to say that this is my favorite moment, but I think my favorite moment in the whole episode was when you get the intersection of those those things, when Hyman goes up to Penny and, um, and Plum uh, and like storms in on them and is like, did you do this? And uh, Plum makes some sassy response and Hyman turns to, turns to Penny and said, did you give her permission to use irony in that way? <laughs> and it like, I don't know. It, I felt like that was, that was the most perfect encapsulation of uh, <laughs> intersectional identity issues that I've ever seen <laughs> in TV. Um, Danny, what did you think of this part of the episode? I mean, I really like this plot line with Penny and Plum um, because they have some pretty funny interactions in the magician's land. Uh, And to see Penny, who is such a good foil to Quentin, be the Mm -hmm. one who kind of goes on this journey with Plum is really heartwarming. And that moment at the beginning of the episode where Penny actually says sorry to Quentin for breaking his plaque really got me in the feels because it's just like, you know, he he doesn't talk about Quentin's death. Like, at least Penny 23 Mm -hmm. doesn't. I love that they intersect the Plum story storyline with this episode because, I mean, like we established earlier in the books, Plum is Rupert's great-granddaughter. And it just seems like like they might retcon it or it could be a red herring. But I saw a lot of people on Twitter actually theorizing that <laughs> Plum might be Jane and Fogg's daughter. And I, like, died. Um, but it's still nice to see it either way that these two stories are intertwining regardless of the outcome. So, Sean, do you have any thoughts about this part of the story? Like, how do you pay attention uh, to 
other parts of the episodes that you aren't in or are in. And it seems especially interesting in a show like this where plot lines so often converge near the end of the season. Well, I obviously was at the read-throughs and, you know, I'm there for some other stuff. But I, you know, on a show like this, you often shoot your stuff and you don't see anything else. So when you Mm -hmm. get to see the episode, you get to see everybody else's stuff and not just the actors um, breathing life into the words, but this incredible production team that do such a good job of making such a, you know, uh, I I just think the the optics, the visuals on the show are, are, it's a really high class, well high production show mm-hmm. um and so seeing the things that i heard in the read through come to life are lovely but i tried to watch it like a fan i i've forgotten a lot of the other stuff even some of the stuff that i'd done i was like i can't remember exactly how this goes because i tend to work on i do it and then you you know you move it to the side um so watching the other stuff was really great and watching the episode <laughs> uh, last night watching hail and summer do each other in, in in you know the freaky friday thing really made me laugh out loud and i'd completely forgotten it had happened so um, that's why i try not to I, I try to make sure that i get my work very thoroughly investigated and done and the rest of it i kind of want to enjoy it like a fan so i don't get too involved in it um until i see it and then i can kind of enjoy it as if i'm not part of the show uh, and i've i've really enjoyed watching all the rest of the cast work on the stuff that I, I wasn't sort of uh, there to see. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should move on to Alice and Katie. So, yeah, Stephanie, just set this up for us. Tell us about this part of the story because it's it's pretty brutal. You were saying this yeah. is your horror fan coming out. Yeah. So um, I love like these, it's almost like a bait and switch kind of thing, like mm-hmm. where um, you don't realize that your ally is really your enemy. And it was a great secret to kind of keep. I mean, and I can talk about this because everybody will have seen this, I think, <laughs> yeah. I hope. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, yeah, like it was it was super, super fun to kind of approach it as like, okay, well, Alice is the kind of personality where things have to be in order. And she's, Mm -hmm. you know, she's like a computer almost with some of the things that she knows. And um, what would that be like to put her in a situation where she's being, you know, being by being herself, she's been able to solve this mystery over and over and (laughs) over again. Mm -hmm. She keeps beating the system. She keeps beating the matrix. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of fun to do where you're like, oh, of course, Alice would figure this out. You know, like, I mean, once it occurs to us what's actually going on. Yeah. Like um, George is not very happy with her. Um, <laughs> Danny was saying it reminded her of the good place of Eleanor in the first or the second oh, season. Of the good yes. place. Kept remembering <laughs> that she was in the bad place. Or very, every yeah. Single time. She's <laughs> like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And, um, I, I, I love that setup of, you know, she she's she's talking to Zelda and, you know, Katie's like, yeah, here's my friend. Let's we're going to figure this out. They're, you know, knee deep in research. And then, boom, like Alice is sort of like, wait a minute. This isn't this isn't at all what we thought, which leads us to my favorite part, um, which was the uh, finger cutting torture. Um, <laughs> it was brutal. <laughs> I mean, uh, both um, we had Jeffrey Arend and as George, a fantastic actor, um, and of course Olivia and Katie, and um, this the the energy between Jeffrey and Olivia in that scene was going to be so important, and they nailed it. Like take after take, I really loved how if you know just speaking in terms of like performance, I want to give um, 
Jeffrey uh, uh, kudos for being able to transform like that. Like he <laughs> flipped a yeah. switch. He and, was brilliant. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And, and Olivia was brilliant as well. Yeah. But again, I, I, I think, yeah, that's why I, I try not to pile on because I'm like, yeah, and then so-and-so was brilliant. <laughs> and, and they were brilliant. It's a very strong ensemble. <laughs> absolutely. So we are very happy with the with that scene and the atmosphere of it and everything too, you know, like having it be this warehouse feel like she has been here this whole time, thinking that she's yeah. moving throughout New York and that kind of thing and, and just not being the case. Um so it was it was a really great scene and I had a lot of fun and the fake fingers, um I tried to steal one and I couldn't. So <laughs> <laughs> So, Clara, do you think uh, the dude who matrixes, you gave me a weird word there, Alice (laughs) and Katie, is actually part of the couple, a.k.a. George? (laughs) You know, I'm not sure, because he he says that Alice was looking for him, but Alice is the one who supplies you're the couple or something like that. So, I, like... That's always the kind of thing that, like, gets my spidey sense tingling when the person doesn't actually confirm themselves and they just kind of, like, let somebody think that that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he could be part of the couple. He could also just be involved with them. For me personally, it would be really weird if the couple wasn't – didn't involve people that we already know. Um, they could also be some, like, weird cabal um, – couple cabal uh and not just two people that would be a good like throw off from how it's done in the books what did you think danny um well with that tweet from sarah saying that marina is going to be coming back in a huge way just really brings me back to our thoughts that she's involved um <laughs> this, <laughs> this could just be another <laughs> yeah this could just be another one of her lackeys um but marina is always such a delicious villain so i could see her behind this how did you feel about Alice losing her fingers and her ability to cast? I mean, I feel like this has to be really hard for Alice, especially having had magic her entire life and coming from like a pure blood magic family. I think she'll be able to uh, cast things, but I don't think it'll be very easy for her and um, especially for her discipline. But maybe she'll learn to cast in a different way, kind of like how Penny learns how to cast in a different way in the books. Um, he still became a master magician without his actual hands. Well, there was a mention of sphincter magic earlier this season. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Um, so we should move on to fashion, but before we do, we've had a lot of listeners ask if uh, you have any fun behind-the-scenes stories to share from the episode. And Sean, since I know you have to go soon, why don't you go first? Oh, God, I always get stumped with this question. I mean, I, I had fun every single day, even on the nights when we were in cold Vancouver forests at, you know, two in the morning or something. <laughs> um, I had fun with the cast, like Trevor's an especially funny guy. Yes. And... Um, and also both he and I uh, both come from a child acting background. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you meet another one like you, you're like, oh, you, you survived as well. How did you survive without going completely insane? <laughs> and so we sort of shared a, a nice evening of drinks and, and just hanging out. And I, I mean, every, every actor that I kind of got paired up with at different times, I seem to just have a fantastic day with. Uh, but there was no... No pranks. I, I, can't really talk, I can't really talk about it too much, but obviously the... The musical episode, God, I really can't say anything, but um, that was fun because obviously there was a song. So therefore, God, I, this is just I'm going to get myself in knots here. Um, there was there was there was rehearsal. 
you know, like you would for anything yeah. you shoot. So that's not giving anything away. And there was a few of us at this rehearsal. And so because we got to rehearse for a while, we all got to hang out for a while. And that meant that there was a bunch of us in one place. And then that was really fun. It was hard work because it was sweaty. But um, <laughs> we all got, or, or a lot of us got to hang out. And so um, that was one of the really fun memories of, and again, after you've seen the episode, you'll get why I'm being so um, secretive about it and cagey. <laughs> yeah, because I really just don't want to give away anything until John or Sarah reveal something. But I've got like a ton of stuff on my phone that I'm just itching to send out um <laughs> that, that i can't until it's aired or about to air so um but yeah i mean I, i'm sure i will engage with you or fans from the show when it's over and i'll be able to tell you all of the things that i was um uh giggled about or loved or whatever but i just i'm so scared of giving anything away Thank because you. my whole character shrouded in so much mystery i'm like i can't be the guy that blows this thing right at the end you know <laughs> i feel like we need to have you back on after yes. the entire thing yeah yeah when it's all over then i'll, I'll know that i <laughs> i cannot give anything away on pain yeah. of death. Well, um, Steffi, if you don't mind, we'll ask you that um, when we get closer to the end so that we can ask a couple of fashion questions to Sean. Sure. Um, we're going to keep it pretty light on fashion this week, mostly because Danny and I were so obsessed with the plot that we mostly forgot to take fashion notes. But there were two things I want to mention. First, I just love the 90s and 20s fashions we got to see during the time travel yes. portions of this episode, especially the like like flapper headband things. I don't know what those are called. Flapper headbands. We're going to go with that. Um, and are I they really... fascinators? Are they fascinators? No, fascinators are like the feathery things stuff. that you clip right. in, but... Um, oh, yeah, like... it's like the flapper 1920s yes. Zelda. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did mm-hmm. find it really amusing that no one commented on Plum or Penny's sartorial choices in either of those time periods. <laughs> and uh, the sort of second thing, I just want to ask... Ask Sean, how do you like the Dark King's wardrobe? It's ridiculous. I mean, it's so <laughs> fabulous and so cool. And, it, you know, costumes are an enormous help to an actor because it can change your posture. It can change how you move. And Magali, the costume designer, um, is such an extraordinary artist. And I had, I had more um, input and conversations with her as these costumes were being designed and built about who this guy is and what because one of the first conversations I remember that we had she said I've got like this idea and she said but I'd love to hear what you think and I thought that's unusual because (laughs) you know often she's the designer it doesn't really matter what I think but it was very considerate of her and she said because I see him very kind of military but also quite um he's a world leader but he's also like a military world leader and I said this might sound like a strange reference but thought of him as a um, bit like Mussolini-like, not as a person, but in that kind of... Miss Mussolini had kick-ass outfits that were also very <laughs> military-based, but made him look kind of a bit like, you know, he was an Italian leader. Of course he was going to be stylish. Even if he was a fascist, he was very stylish. And she said, that's so funny because I thought the exact same thing. And I was like, oh, great. So we're on a similar wavelength. So the collars and the structure yeah. of it... But then she added, because he's the Dark King, it's like dark and sequins. Like, I could have strolled onto the set of Dynasty and just been fierce in my <laughs> outfits. They were that good. But I just want to give a huge shout out to, to Magali and her incredible team, because the, yeah. the speed at which they turn these 
fabulous costumes around uh, and the, the, the pressure that's on them throughout the series to just keep, I had to have like a different outfit almost every other week and, and they were building them week by week and mm-hmm. they're just gorgeous. So massive, massive appreciation to that department. And, and for one of the first times I really got to uh, discuss with a costume designer about my feeling about the character and it was very collegial and very involved and um again it was it was um very rep- you know representative of my whole process which was everyone wanted to work together there wasn't any i'm in charge it's got to be this way it was like well what do you think and it it just makes for an incredibly nice uh working environment that i think really gets the best out of everybody Well, Sean, we will let you go put your kids to bed now, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for doing the podcast and keeping all the fans guessing. And and even though your hot take was particularly right on this one, I'm going to reserve judgments about everything until the end. Then you, you can tell me what you think, how it's going to end, and then I'll, and then we can discuss. I'm sure you, you sound like you're on the right track, so that's why I'm so scared about so giving anything away. But thank you, Stephanie. Lovely to talk to you. Same and thank here. you, ladies. Lovely to talk to you all. Take Thank care. You. Bye, Sean. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. So... We should move on to our usual question. So if you could steal anyone's wardrobe from the show, who would it be? <laughs> oh, my God. Definitely Josh. I mean, like... <laughs> I think that's a total novel answer. <laughs> about comfort here. I'm talking button-ups, hoodies, sneakers. I don't give a shit. Like, I am like... Please just let me put on something so I can go out in the world and something other than jams. So, you know, both like I'm between dressing like Quentin or dressing like Julia. Like, I'm with you. I'm I'm in the comfort zone. I honestly, if I could wear pajamas constantly, that's what I would do. That's what I would do. I mean, I also have to give like big ups to um, Plum's wardrobe too. I mean, she was wearing some really great colors. I mean, melanin's popping. So she and I both have to like, you know, dress for success in that regard, make sure that we're glowing. I think (laughs) that um, her wardrobe would be second. I think if I have to go somewhere that's important, I'll dress like Plum. (laughs) <laughs> good answers I love you are the literally the first person who has said Josh on like five years of podcast said anybody other than Margot Elliot or Julia those are like the yeah. three options yeah I mean they are so like they are so well put together gorgeous gorgeous wardrobe for sure I just know myself yeah I mean and like I'm gonna work. be like eating something that spills and I'm gonna be like well it's fine because I have a hoodie and I'm gonna zip it up so <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that that takes us to our MVPs, which is so tough this season because everyone is just on fire and they're like these big ensemble <sighs> episodes. Uh, Danny, do you want to go first? Yeah, these ensemble episodes are always like really, really hard to pick an MVP for. Um, there's also just like a lot of ensemble episodes this season in general. I feel like I have to go like a combo for it and give it to our guest, Sean, who's no longer here. But (laughs) also Hale, Um, they're impossible to take your eyes off whenever they're on the screen together. They both just have captured so many different roles this season, just even the two of them. Um, Like Hale when he gets possessed again. Yes. (laughs) Um, and in the previous episode when he was playing as Marco yeah. as well. <laughs> um, but the big 
the big reveal for this episode was just so insane. So like I couldn't like not give it to Sean and he's just mm-hmm. been phenomenal for like this entire season. And I mean, I've been a big fan of his for a while. So it was really, I was really excited when I found out that he was going to be a part of the cast this year. Me too. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> right. Um, I was just, like, so excited because I was like, this show is going to give us everything that Once Upon a Time did not give us. <laughs> um, anyways, like, I was I was just really happy because, like, you know, it's like we have a really great and, like, complicated love interest for Elliot. And I just, like I said earlier, I just want the best for Elliot. Um, but I give it to both Sean and Hale, for sure. I knew you were going to give your MVP to Sean because you wore makeup to this podcast. <laughs> I wore makeup to a podcast, okay? Wow. Wow. I'm home during the day. I get bored and I do my makeup. But if I'm, like, coming off from work, I'm just like, fuck everyone. I'm going to look like a scrub. (laughs) You are keeping it real. (laughs) So I'm going to give my MVP this episode to, is it Ryan or Rianne Steele? Ryan. Ryan mm-hmm. Steele, yeah. I thought mm-hmm. so. I just wasn't sure if I was, like, getting that because of the Ryan that we met spelled kind of a similar way over the summer. Oh. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm giving my MVP to Ryan Steele because I love the way that she's playing Plum. It's both different from how I imagined her in the books, but also really oddly familiar. Like, I think she captures her essence while making the character her own. And mm-hmm. I just think that's so great. But I also want to give a nod to Sean because, of course, amazing work all season. And it, it's pretty much only because even though the reveal is big, right, like there's a much smaller role for the Dark King otherwise in this episode. And so, like, that's one of the only reasons I didn't give it to him. But I do want to, like, give a nod to both Sean as Dark King and Sean as Sir Effingham. I also kind of want to give it like runner up to Olivia because of that horror movie scream <laughs> and Dustin because Hyman like started out as a joke character, but we see so much depth from him in this episode and um, his name is in the title of the next episode and in the credits for the next two after no, that. <laughs> one after that. I thought it was, oh yeah, sorry. It's in the 511 title and his credits (laughs) his credit he has credits in like all the way through the finale so i'm excited to hear more of that so my mvp is apparently everyone (laughs) you know what i was thinking i was thinking this earlier and we've been talking about like the secret history all season with people Mm -hmm. is like hymen reminds me so much of bunny that it like (gasps) Like, we asked that question. Bunny. We asked that question. Didn't we? Didn't I ask like who's Bunny to Alex and uh, and to and Jay. Jay? Yeah, you you're did, right though. They, like, Hyman is like, Bunny. Like, I don't know. You're that's a hundred percent on target. Fuck. Oh, that makes me so happy. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> well, if I ever make my series, because I really want to rewrite uh-huh. the Secret History as a TV series, he would have to be Bunny. Mm, there we go. Stephanie, do you want to shout out someone or half a dozen someone? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, I really was completely riveted by every scene that we had with um, Hale and Sean and Julia. Like, I think that in particular, Hale and Sean had to have a specific energy, mm-hmm. especially after the transformation and, or the, uh, the, uh, seance thing yeah Yeah. (laughs) I was like my brain is broken you guys I don't know (laughs) words anymore um yes after the seance um 
I really think they they went for it and it shows. And oh. I just love, 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 love their performances in this episode. Um, and I also really like there's a special shout out that, you know, may have been overlooked. Um, Alex Reed as Gordy. Um, I love him. He was hilarious. He was making me laugh so much that I think I was like, I need to shut up because there's sound rolling. I mean, like, I'm not laughing out loud, but I'm afraid that I'm going to, you know, like it was yeah. that, it was that good. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's like a special, like he had like a, you know, a little bit of a smaller appearance in this episode, but it was very, very special and hilarious. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um so it's our final analysis time. And for me, like, this was such a powerful episode in so many ways. I love the Dark King reveal, obviously. Um, I, I think I, I loved it for me, but I loved it for Danny even more because she got to be right. Um, I, like, screamed <laughs> at you through text messages. You did. You did. My phone <laughs> was blowing up. Um, but what's most incredible to me is that every other plot point stands up to that, right? Like, this is a really big reveal, but it is in some ways, the smallest part of the episode. So, like, Penny and Plum's arc, I said this before, I think that's probably my favorite. Um, And I really like all the things that I talked about before about how, like, unlike all these other time travel stories that treat going back in time like tourism, it it really recognizes that this is going to be a different experience for people of color, that you're going to get racism and sexism factoring in um, and that it is part of the world building. Um, I also really like, um, like I loved hated Alice and Katie's storyline, loved it because it was great, <laughs> hated it because it upset me deeply to see Alice go through something like that. Yeah. Um, but she's going after big players and there are always consequences for some, for doing that. And so I, I really felt like this was... <laughs> the hero pays the price. Correct. Um, but yeah, I really think this was this episode was like a masterclass in what happens when you take the world that you're writing really seriously. And it shows that you can do that and still have a ton of fun. So uh, not that my notes are ever useful to y'all, though Elle flatters us by taking notes every time we have her on. <laughs> um, but I have no notes for this episode. I think it was, I just think this was perfect. And I cannot believe that this is only your second show. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's thank you. That's very sweet, <laughs> Danny. Okay, so like, I mean, I feel the same way. Of course, though, my favorite part was more like the fillery side of things, and I also think that the show is just so fantastic at getting these like incredible yes. actors to do guest spots. Like last season, we had Cameron Mannheim, who's just was fucking amazing, and and then we have um, the actor who plays George uh, Jeffrey Aaron. He's just wonderful. Like he usually plays like these really comedic roles. Yeah. So to see him play someone that's just like honestly genuinely scary, it, it was just awesome. Like I don't think I've ever seen him in anything like that serious. Um, and also, of course, Stella has been wonderful as Julia this season. And we haven't mentioned Julia in this episode at all, which is kind of a crime, um, especially for me. <laughs> so <laughs> her, her relationship is deepening with like all of these different characters. Um, seeing her bond with Elliot under these circumstances is so lovely to me. Um, I, I just feel like, you know, she's taking these people who were really close to Quentin and building bonds with them because Quentin's no longer around. And it's just like, I, I love that for her because I feel like she never would have been able to do that if Quentin didn't die, which mm. still sucks, obviously, but. I really, I just really like that for her. 
Um, my only criticism would be that Katie's not in enough episodes this season, and that saddens me. <laughs> well, and as you were talking, I came up with one note, which is now I'm really, really curious. I didn't think about this before, but I'm really, really curious to know what happened to Charlton when Elliot got seanced. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> I mean, he went to the beach memory, so he can leave at will, apparently. He just, you, you think he just went to the beach? That's it? Well, that's what Margo said at the end of last episode, that he was going to hide in Elliot's beach memories for a little while because he was traumatized. (laughs) So I don't know. But also, like, I'm kind of confused as to, like, how did they beat George? Like, all of a sudden it's just kind of done. Like, I think that. Didn't, did you notice what happened, Clara? Because, like, I didn't. Like, all of a sudden, it was just, like, the next scene. and There was... I, well, I think I think Katie um, woke up and helped Yeah, I saw Alice that, out, but, but, like, but how? Or is that something we'll find out eventually? I see a tight-lipped writer smile, so we'll, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> no, I mean, it's... It remains to be seen. Okay. All right. I was just wondering, I was like, is it something that was intentionally left out or is it something that like got cut for time? Because I know there's been a couple instances this season where things that made things make a little bit more sense did end up getting cut out. Nose tap, tight lipped, writer smile. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to leave it on that ambiguous note. <laughs> so uh, Sean's not here, but... Thanks, Sean, for joining us. And Stephanie, who is here, thank you for being here. Any last <laughs> thoughts before we wrap up? Anything you want to say to the listeners? Yeah, like we did have um, like a, a behind the scenes thing that oh, yeah. I wanted to share. There was like, it, I'll be very quick. Um, as you know, we went back to 1998, which mm-hmm. for me was not the most awesome year, but it was still a very memorable year. I was in high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we ended up... Um, As I was writing the episode in the writer's room, uh, as we were building out the episode, um, one of the other writers, uh, Hillary, who was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, she and I kept referring to the Third Eye Blind song, uh, um, Semi-Charmed Life. (laughs) (laughs) And so every time we talk about 1998, she would dutifully start, do, do, do. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was able to coax our director, Tanya McKiernan, who was a fabulous director to work with. Um, She, I I convinced her to, as we were taking a a setup break to um, play it. And so we had a little nineties dance party to third eye blind (laughs) while we were shooting our 1998 scenes. I was (laughs) literally just gotten into a giant thread, like, like a week ago with like a couple people on Twitter about like, if, if they covered like, early like 90 or like late 90s like early 2000s like you know pop or pop rock like what would you want them to like play in like in like a musical aspect and I know that that was one of the songs I mentioned because it's such a funny song because it sounds so happy but it's actually just about trying to get off of hardcore drugs like (laughs) I know it's so yeah it's it's a very NC-17 song (laughs) that's the 90s in a nutshell and and the funny thing about that song is it was literally in like the trailers for the Tigger movie and I was like why <laughs> on that note 
listeners, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you like what you heard, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever the fuck else you go to listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling friendly, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help other listeners find us so they can share in conversations with wonderful people like Sean and Stephanie. And that's it. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Mind slot. <laughs>